goes to work. Bryant the drive. He's an 18-time All-Star. Goodness, Colby Bryant with Petrus all over. A two-time gold medalist. Colby's got it. Above the three-point line, taking a little bit of time. One dribble, pull up. For the win, he's got it! A five-time NBA champion. Colby around him. Colby down the middle. And a two-time Finals MVP. Bryant for the win. He is hard to believe. He had a public fall from grace in 2003 there's enough evidence to put Kobe Bryant on trial for sexual assault. A fall he rebounded from until his life was tragically cut short in 2020. NBA superstar Kobe Bryant, 41 years of age, was killed in a helicopter crash. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Kobe. I'm Brandon Pope. I love you forever and always. Kobe being Bryant. Today, the whole picture of Kobe Bryant Featuring Kobe biographer Mike Sielski and Kobe's high school basketball coach, Greg Downer. To me, he was my Superman, and it might sound corny, but Superman's not supposed to die. And then later, author and former sports radio host Julie DeCaro and ESPN writer and commentator David Dennis Jr. We have this story that has never quite gotten the cultural reckoning that it should. What made Kobe Bryant? Kobe Bryant. Today on Making. Number 24, the Black Mama, Kobe This is Making Kobe Bryant. I'm Brandon Pope. Today I'm joined by a few folks who can speak to the early life of Kobe. First, we got Greg Downer, Kobe's high school basketball coach at Lower Marion High School in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, where he still coaches and teaches to this day. Greg, thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. How long would you reckon you've been coaching? This is going to be my 33rd year uh, with the Aces. Oh, man. Quite a storied career. We appreciate you spending some time. We also got Mike Sielski, a journalist with the Philadelphia Inquirer and author of the biography The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. Thanks for being here, Mike. It's my pleasure, Brandon. Thank you for having me. You know, Mike, I'm I'm wondering what the first word uh, that comes to your mind when you think about Kobe Bryant. I think driven. Uh, I think that was the biggest revelation to me in researching and writing the book. Uh, the degree to which he pushed himself and the lengths that he was willing to go to be the best basketball player on the planet. I think, of course, that was always his reputation, but it still surprised me uh, how far he was willing to push himself to be that great. Kobe Bryant was immediately immersed in the game of basketball from the earliest moments of his life. Follow jam by Joe Bryant over Caldwell Jones. The Joe Bryant Show here in the fourth. His father was Joe Jellybean Bryant, a basketball journeyman. Nice move by Jellybean and a two-point goal, ten call. Kobe grew up courtside at his father's home games in places like Philadelphia, San Diego, and Houston. It was after a somewhat spotty eight-year NBA career that Joe Bryant quit the NBA and joined a league in Italy. He took his family with him, a turning point for his six-year-old son. So we packed our bags and moved to Italy. I started first grade over there in an Italian school. Kobe became fluent in Italian. (laughs) No, Italy became my home. My heart is there. My heart will always be there. 
And with his dad now playing only once a week, they spent a lot more time together. Joe showed Kobe tapes of NBA games. On the weekends when his father played, Kobe worked as a ball boy and a mop boy. During intermissions, Kobe would practice his shooting. One player called halftime the Kobe Show. He was a natural athlete with a passion for basketball, an adolescent honing his craft. So we just talked a little bit there about Kobe Bryant's father who played in the NBA for eight seasons. Mike, I'm going to start with you. How did growing up in NBA arenas and getting to know pro players, just being around the game overall, uh, how did that shape Kobe's childhood? It's like anything else, I think, Brandon. When you grow up immersed in that kind of environment, you're going to learn by osmosis. You know, Kobe spent a lot of time watching his father play, both in the Spectrum in Philadelphia, uh, in San Diego. When he was, you know, three, four, five, six years old, he would watch his dad's games on TV when Joe was playing with the San Diego Clippers. And he would toss a towel over his shoulder uh, and say to his mom, Mom, I'm sweating just like dad. And he would mop his brow. He was constantly watching and taking in everything that Joe was experiencing during Joe's career in the NBA. And because he emulated and had spent so much time watching veteran NBA players, uh, his grandfather would send him tapes of guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson. He would wear goggles when he played pickup games, even though he didn't need them to see because he had seen Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wear goggles when he played for the Lakers. Uh, And then, of course, once Joe went on and played in Italy, uh, Kobe could be on the court with him, you know, amongst these other professional players who were Joe's teammates and competitors. Yeah, Mike, let's let's talk about Italy a little bit and and Kobe's time there. Was it different versus childhood in the United States? How was that for him? Yeah, it was very different. Um, for one thing, you know, the entire Bryan family moves to Italy when Joe decides to continue his professional career there. And they're going to be a bit isolated just for the geographical and cultural distance that they now have from the United States. You know, here they are living in Italy. They don't see a lot of other people, other families who look like them. Um, they're the rare black family that's living in Italy. And so they become very, very tight knit. Uh, and then you have Joe, who is now a star as a pro player in Italy, he's he's reached a level uh, in Europe that he never really reached in the NBA. You know, as, as you described him, Brandon, he was kind of a journeyman. He played for a lot of different teams. He was the kind of guy who might miss practice, miss the bus to practice, uh, you know, a bit of a ne'er-do-well when he's playing with the NBA. So here he is in Italy. He's a star. And the star's son who also wants to be a player is there with him at practices and at games and Kobe's dribbling the ball and keeping an eye on Joe's teammates. How are they playing? What is their footwork like? One of the things that if you talk to NBA aficionados and experts about Kobe Bryant, they will tell you that the thing that set Kobe apart from all the other players, not only of his generation, but really of all time is that no player had better footwork. No player could manipulate his feet on the court to get his shot off. Even an unusual kind of acrobatic, how did he do that kind of shot better than Kobe Bryant? And you can tra- trace that directly to him being six, seven, eight years old at floor level in Italy, watching the way those players went through their drills and looked through their footwork. 
Really interesting analysis there. And, Greg, I want to bring you in here to kind of get your thoughts on that. When you coached Kobe in high school, did you notice anything in particular that stood out from him that he, he picked up from Italy? Well, I think a U.S. kid, you know, is is in love with the three-point line. I think U.S. kids dribble too much. You know, Allen Iverson was a big example in Philadelphia as just this amazing raw talent, played a very fancy style. I'm not knocking American basketball, but I've heard that Europeans play a lot of three-on-three. I hear that Europeans um, shoot on the appropriate size rims when they're younger. Um, and, and they may be onto something with some of these things. You know, when I first met Kobe, I found him to be very fundamentally sound, not a real fancy player, um, good shooting form, good dribbling skills, good good passing skills. And, you know, Joe deserves a lot of credit. You know, if the European experience was 50% of this, I think 50% of this was having a, a knowledgeable father and a knowledgeable family surrounding him that could give him the ingredients to be a good player. Sticking with, you know, that relationship with his father there, which is really fascinating. When he moved to Italy, uh, Joe's team played once a week. So Kobe, he had a lot of time with his dad. Mike, how important was that? As Greg just said, it was vitally important. You know, Joe had lived the life that Kobe wanted to live. He could advise him on it. He would bring Kobe on some of his lengthy road trips to these games. As you said, Brandon, they would play once a week, usually on Sundays. And there was one trip in particular where Joe was sitting uh, with a teammate, another American player in, in the bus. And Kobe, as a young boy, kind of joked with Joe and this teammate to say, I'm going to be better than both of you guys. <laughs> and as he kind of went to the front of the bus, Joe turned to the teammate and said, you know, he's, he's going to be better than me. You know, and, and he framed it in terms of almost like a family prophecy or something like that, that there was a legend that someone in the Bryant family would come along and take the family to new heights that it had never experienced before. And Joe said, it's not going to be me, but it might be this kid. I didn't want to come back and my sisters didn't want to come back. The Bryant family moved back to the U.S. when Kobe was barely a teenager. It was very hard getting adjusted simply because I had a lot of trouble understanding English and the slang. But one thing I had in common with some of my other students and classmates was basketball. That's Kobe at age 17, giving a presentation for his English class and the cameras at ESPN. So on Fridays and Saturdays, I would go to my rec room with my basketball and basically dribble myself to sleep. As high school started, his goal was to win a spot on the McDonald's All-American team by his senior year. That meant Kobe had work to do. His freshman year, Kobe was immediately named a starter. The Aces of Lower Marion won only four games, but the losing wouldn't last. Over Kobe's next three years, the Aces won 77 games. As a junior, Kobe averaged over 30 points and 10 rebounds a game. He was named Pennsylvania Player of the Year. And then, as a senior, Kobe carried the team to the state championship game. If you remember Lower Marion's last state championship, well, then you probably remember Pearl Harbor. Champion out of the East with a record of 30-3. and The Aces of Lower Marion featuring the best player many believe in high school basketball in 1995. Kobe Bryant, you see the Aces opponents knew what they were going to do. 
put the ball in Kobe's hands. They threw a unique defense at him, and Kobe started the game cold. Who would have thunk it? Kobe Bryant going through the first quarter scoreless. But he adjusted. He's still alive. Bryant. Give and go. Griffin. Oh, my goodness. Oh, into the lane. Missed it. Rebound. Bryant looks to elevate and linger. Oh, goodness. Bryant all the way. Oh, goodness. With two hands with a ball. Into a three. Missed it. That's going to do it. It's over. Laura Marion has won. Wait, what is it? 1996? 96. Here are the Aces. Word up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Got to love those memories. Now, Greg, around this time, you were a fairly new coach, correct? Yes. And so the Bryant family moved in town uh, and you heard rumors about a young basketball phenom while he was still in middle school. uh, So much so that you went to watch one of his middle school games. Uh, Can you tell us that story about what that was like for you? Dr. Smith was the coach's name, and I was hearing a lot about this person named Kobe I rarely ever will go down to a junior high game, even to this day. But I went to watch him play, and and the coach was old school and pass it X amount of times where you might find a seat on the bench. Really not a lot of up and down, not a lot of transition, not a lot of chances for really anybody to display their skills, let alone Kobe. So um, I didn't get a great look at him then, but the, the buzz was high enough that I invited him to practice on a weekend with, with our current varsity. And uh, he came in there and he stepped into like a one-on-one drill and he was just ripping people apart. And I just turned to one of my assistant coaches and I said, this kid's going to be a pro. So you invited Kobe to a high school scrimmage. He was in middle school when this happened, correct? Mm-hmm. Wow. And he was able to hold his own. Yeah. I mean, we, we weren't great back then, but uh, <laughs> it's rare that a that a 13-year-old just physically can, can stay with a 17- or an 18-year-old. And, I mean, a little bit more about me. Like, I saw his 6'10 father standing in the corner. I knew genetically who he was. Um, I was a kid uh, probably at the age of 12 or 14 that was watching Joe Bryant, watching Daryl Dawkins, watching Lloyd Free, uh, Doug Collins. Like some of these guys were, were my idols. But when I patched it together, you know, with who he was genetically, um, I knew I had something really special. At the onset of that high school career, you, you see this outstanding talent did you develop a plan in a sense for Kobe Bryant? Was it a four-year plan? Uh, what was your kind of coaching mentality for him? I did. I uh, challenged him. I thought when I first saw him, he was probably uh, amongst a hundred other candidates to be really back then what was the most prestigious honor for anybody, a McDonald's All-American. And our plan was to try to shave that in half year by year, 100 becomes 50, 50 becomes 25, 25 becomes 12. We had a a concrete plan. You know, some of these kids will fall off with bad academics. Some of these kids will fall off with bad choices. Some of these kids will fall off with lots of talent, bad, bad work ethic. And once I got to know his insane work ethic and the parents were really good parents and he was making a lot of good decisions off the court, um, 100 did become 50, 50 did become 25, 
he and I followed the plan together and the plan worked and he was a McDonald's All-American and um, the Naismith National Player of the Year. I want to rewind to a key moment in his high school career. It was Kobe's junior year. The Aces made the playoffs, uh, but they were bounced out. Notably, they lost a game that was tied with 10 seconds left and the ball was in Kobe's hands. Uh, Greg, what happened in that game and what happened afterward? We were at Hazleton, you know, a a really basketball-rich area, Um, 3,000 fans in the stands, 2,900 of them rooting for Hazleton, 100 people traveling from Ardmore rooting for the Aces. You know, I thought worst-case scenario, we're going to overtime here. Um, and ideally you want the best player in the country to obviously take the last shot. And we threw the ball to one of our players, Tariq Wilson, standing by half court. They weren't even guarding us. And shockingly, he dropped it out of bounds. Um, if he doesn't drop that ball and he, and he pitches it right back to Kobe, uh, perhaps it would have been a different outcome, but it, it turned out to be, a you know, a, a really painful learning experience. And in, in some ways it, it paved the way for our, for our 96 state title. I'm sure after a game like that, he just, I'm sure it showed how unhappy he was with that. I mean, there were some emotional moments in the locker room, you know, for the seniors, that's, that's the last time they're going to wear the uniform. And, you know, some people are crying, some people aren't. As a coach, you never know emotionally how how different kids are going to handle situations like this. So we went around the room and, you know, some kids were kind of softly thanking one another. And then, you know, it was time for Kobe to grab the mic. And, you know, it was interesting to see what he was going to say. And just a quick goodbye to the current seniors and, you know, a little bit of profanity, maybe a little bit more than a little bit of profanity. And... uh <laughs> just told anybody returning in the locker room that there's no way this is going to happen again under his watch. And you better spend uh, the next six to nine months preparing your skills to to make sure that none of us have to feel this feeling again. Sounds like a champion to me. Mike, I'm going to bring you in here. I want to talk about the summer of 1995. Kobe gets invited to a scrimmage against college and NBA players. How did that come to pass? Well, at the time, uh, the 76ers head coach was a guy named John Lucas, who had had a long career in the NBA, uh, had coached at, you know, coached the San Antonio Spurs, I believe, before coming to the Sixers. And he and his family lived in the Lower Marion School District. So one night, Lucas sees Kobe playing in a district playoff game and thinks to himself, if I'm still the coach of the Sixers in two years, that's who I'm going to draft is Kobe Bryant. So he invites Kobe uh, to join these pickup games and scrimmages. Uh, And so Kobe starts going up against guys like Rick Mahorn and Vernon Maxwell. And of course, the guy who had been the Sixers first round pick the year before, Jerry Stackhouse. He's playing against these guys in pickup games and scrimmages uh, and holding his own and then some. And that is the pivotal, and I think Greg would agree with this, that is the pivotal summer in a way of his basketball career, because that persuades him. Yeah, I'm really smart. And I could go to any college in the country that I would want to go to, but you know what? I don't need to go to college. I can jump straight from high school to the NBA. 
I'm proving it every single day that I'm going up against all these NBA players, these high level college players. Uh, and so that, that really convinces him, you know what, I'm going to go straight to the league. And that becomes the summer that in some ways changes everything for him. Straight to the league, straight to the NBA. He even had a press conference about it. Uh, Kobe Bryant have decided to take my talent to uh... <laughs> No, I have decided to skip college and take my talent to the NBA. Greg, were you surprised about the decision by Kobe to forego college, go straight to the league? Were you supportive of it? I was a little concerned about it. You know, can uh, can somebody that young, you know, get a million dollars into their wallet and and survive the temptations of uh, of the adult world? Um, but in in all reality, his dream was to get on the court with Jordan as quickly as possible and. Um, I think Mike makes a good point. You know, those scrimmages at the St. Joe's were very revealing. And I think that planted the seed in his head that, you know, maybe he could do this. Mike, at this time, how common was it for a kid out of high school to say, hey, I'm just going to go to the NBA and actually be successful at it? It was not common at all, Brandon. It had happened the year before in 1995 when Kevin Garnett had done it. Uh, And that was the first time in 20 years the difference between that situation and Kobe's, though, was that Garnett was a seven-foot center. He was 18 years old, but he was physically developed to a point already where teams felt like, okay, we're willing to take a chance on this kid. Kobe, as Greg has alluded to, even with all the physical development that had taken place over his four years at Lower Marion, was still a six-six guard. Not only that, And believe me, Greg is one of the best coaches in Pennsylvania high school basketball history. But at the time, Lower Marion didn't have the reputation of being a top-notch high school program then that it does now. At the time, people were saying to themselves, who is Kobe Bryant playing against? He's playing against these other suburban Philadelphia schools that aren't really elite-level high schools. He doesn't play in the Public League of Philadelphia. He doesn't play in the Philadelphia Catholic League. How good can he really be? So, uh, I mean, in retrospect, it sounds kind of silly to to kind of think of, you know, other analysts and general managers thinking this way about Kobe Bryant. But at the time, only so many people knew how good Kobe really was. Um, there was a lot of skepticism around him, I think. Yeah, and when you got interest from places like Duke, I mean, that's one of the greatest what ifs, I feel like, in sports. What if Kobe went to Duke? Um, and had a run there, what could have happened? I mean, it, it's fascinating stuff. But, but clearly, he, he made a decision that was right for him because he gets to the NBA, Greg. He, he bursts into the NBA. He held his own with these greats. He even won the slam dunk contest his rookie year. Greg, when you saw this early success, how were you feeling as a coach? Well, I, I mean, I knew that he would ultimately have a lot of success, Um but I wasn't sure how quickly it would come. And there were a lot of bumps along the road initially with, with Del Harris and, and the air balls versus the Utah Jazz. Seven seconds. Here's a three-pointer air ball at the end. That's Kobe Bryant. Another air ball. Four seconds left. It's over. It's over. It's over. And he just wasn't physically quite ready to play in a man's league. But, but his moxie and his arrogance and his confidence – 
Um, I knew that would be there. And it just was a matter for me, like, uh, how long is it going to take for him to figure this out? And, and once he does look out. One of the things that struck me, uh, Kobe had a friend who was a couple years older than he was, uh, Anthony Gilbert. So Anthony and Kobe would go around to basketball courts and playgrounds in and around Philadelphia and play ball. Anthony had two jobs when he played with Kobe. Number one was to rebound for him. And then the other job that Anthony had was to scream at Kobe while Kobe went through all these drills. You're soft. (laughs) You couldn't play in the public league. You go to a white school. Kobe wanted him to do this because he knew he was going to continue to hear this throughout his career in basketball. And he wanted to kind of don this emotional armor to be prepared for it, to get ready to deal with it. Uh, There's a famous clip of Kobe's NBA career where he's standing in front of uh, a player named Matt Barnes, who was playing for the Orlando Magic at the time. Matt Barnes and Kobe Bryant say hello to each other. And Barnes is going to inbound the basketball. And Kobe's standing there guarding him. And Barnes fakes as if he's going to throw the ball in Kobe's face. And Kobe doesn't flinch. You're not going to get into the head of Kobe Bryant. Does not move. If you have a pillow fight and somebody fakes a pillow at you, don't you at least flinch? Kobe Bryant, that's the play of the game. He didn't even flinch. And there's no way he could know that Barnes was going to do that. And yet he does not move. I maintain you can trace a line from that moment all the way back to those unique basketball games and workouts he was having with Anthony Gilbert that prepared him for a moment like that. Yeah, and I didn't get a chance earlier to play play the one word game, but um, for this segment, I will, you know, just winner. You know, is there any doubt that he's going to get the redeem team turned around? No. Is there any doubt that he's going to be able to win a couple of rings without Shaq? No. Is there any doubt that he's going to get the 1995 Aces season, uh, turn it from kind of like a silver medal to a gold medal? No. There are a handful of winners, you know, Brady, Tiger, Kobe, Derek Jeter, Gretzky, whatever list you want to come up with. But um, he is the winner of all winners. And uh, he paid a steep price to become that winner. Um, it was not a straight line. It, there were a lot of crooked lines in there. But um, to me, he was uh, my Superman. And, you know, it might sound corny, but Superman's not supposed to die. The shame of it all is that, uh, you know, we lost him. We lost his beautiful daughter who was looking to be a great athlete. And um, there were many more championships to come for that family. We've got more Making Kobe coming up in a minute. But first, thank you to Greg Downer and Mike Sealski for joining us today. This was an amazing conversation, guys. Thank you, Brandon. This was great. Thank you, Brandon. After the break, a conversation about the complicated legacy of Kobe Bryant with two new guests. Back in a minute. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? 
or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River. Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Kobe Bryant exploded into the league. Here's Kobe Bryant, who about a week ago became the youngest player ever to start an NBA game. There were a few hiccups, a few air balls, but he immediately made an impression. Kobe Bryant is guarded by Michael Jordan, and a pull away by Kobe Bryant. That's the future, and even Michael Jordan will tell you. He won the slam dunk contest his rookie year. Oh, between the legs, Kobe yes. Bryant. Look at him, yes. check him out, check him out. And he helped his team reach the playoffs in each of his first three seasons. But it wasn't until 2000 that Kobe, alongside that year's unanimous league MVP, Shaquille O'Neal, won their first NBA title. And the Lakers are the 2000 NBA champions. They won it again the next year. The best all-time playoff winning percentage in the history of the league. And the year after that. The Los Angeles Lakers have made it three straight Kobe was climbing the NBA mountaintop. Then, a year later, it came crashing down. A preliminary hearing is underway in Colorado to determine whether there's enough evidence to put Kobe Bryant on trial for sexual assault. I believe I'm innocent. I didn't force her to do anything against her will. Just an amazing rise there for Kobe Bryant. Three NBA championships in three years. But then, for many people, a career overshadowed by what came next. Here to talk about the challenging issues that surround this time in Kobe's life, I'm joined by Julie DeCaro, a former sports radio host, attorney, and author of Sidelined, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America, which came out this year. Julie, good to see you, and thank you for joining us. Hey, Brandon. It's great to see you. Also here with us is David Dennis Jr. He's a senior writer at Anscape. That's the ESPN Sports and Pop Culture website, formerly known as The Undefeated. He's also the author of The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the Legacy of a Freedom Ride, which also came out this year. David, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. So, Julie, I'm going to start with you on this one. Kobe Bryant, he already had, I mean, one of the most successful NBA careers of all time in 2003. And it was shortly after his third championship with the Lakers that He was charged with sexually assaulting a 19-year-old woman in a Colorado hotel room, a hotel she worked at. You wrote about this in your book and the sort of cultural impact of it. Can you just outline for us what happened, both for the young woman involved here, but also in broader strokes for Kobe Bryant? Yeah. So back in you know the early 2000s, uh, 2003, I believe, Kobe Bryant was staying at a hotel in Eagle, Colorado, which is near Vail. Um, He was staying at a resort and spa and, uh, you know, had checked in and asked a 19-year-old hotel employee to give him a tour of the hotel. Um, She did. Afterwards, they sat down and talked a little bit in his hotel room. Apparently, there was some consensual kissing. And then what happened after that, accounts diverge wildly. Um, She claimed she was sexually assaulted. Um, He claims that everything was consensual. And, um, you know, at the time... It, it was sort of like a bombshell going off. But at the same time, there was no social media. So, you know, we didn't have we had message boards back then. So we didn't have sort of people talking about it on Twitter or Instagram like we would have today or making TikToks about it. Um, so 
In that sense, I think that, you know, the only people who really followed what was happening were following it, what you were getting from the nightly news and reading in the newspaper. Um, you know, it wasn't like today where people are sharing articles and everyone's clicking on it. So, you know, I, I think that things may have been different if we lived in a different time or if social media was, you know, something that everybody was involved in back then. But um, ultimately what happened was that um, the woman's name was disseminated in violation of Colorado Shield Law, Rape Shield Law. Um, her name went out all over the place on message boards. She started getting harassed by fans from all over the country. Um, and she eventually dropped the charges and they settled, uh, as they say, out of court. Um, Kobe had to issue an apology. And he said in that apology that he understood that she did not consider that encounter to be consensual. And a year later, he got a huge extension from the Lakers. Nike eventually took him back and it was sort of just back to business as usual. Julie, can you give us a sense of how common a case like this was? Was it was this something that uh, had happened in the news before, at least to this level? Um, give us a little breakdown on that. Not that I can recall. I mean, not with someone with the stature of Kobe Bryant. I mean, you know, I, I guess the closest thing we could think of would be Tiger Woods when that whole situation sort of blew up. But um, it was huge. And I think people need to realize how rare it is for a sexual assault case to even be charged by prosecutors, especially when there's a very high profile person involved, right? Because they have not only an attorney, but they have a, a PR team, they have an agent, they have, you know, their sports team behind them, they have the league behind them, all their fans. So there's this wildly disproportionate power imbalance between the accuser and the accused. And um, I don't know if we'd really seen anything like it before at that time. David, you've written about this, so let's go a little deeper. What was the cultural reaction to the story uh, back in 2003? I mean, I distinctly remember I was in I was in high school at the time, and there was uh, a large belief amongst my friends, people in my community, that this was a white woman taking down a black man. You know, that's what we thought at the time, right? Is that we've heard this story a million times. Black man at the peak of, of his career in Denver, Colorado, right, gets trapped up by this white woman, right? And that was sort of the narrative, again, like Julie was saying, we weren't getting all the details on a daily basis. And I think some of us, a lot of us as young men didn't want to know the details, right? We just said, this is what happened. Kobe, you know, was was wrongfully accused, free Kobe, right? And I mean, even at the time, there was, well, he would go to his court cases and come back and hit game winners. And it was like this heroic thing that Kobe was doing to persevere through these these trial and, and make a shot, right? And I think that that plays into a lot of why he was accepted, you know, back. And it wasn't until much later when I was older and started reckoning with, with my relationship to how we talk about these things and treat women that I was able to, you know, have a more nuanced and truthful look at what at what happened um, in Denver and Kobe's role in that and his, you know, quite frankly, just being wrong, you know. Um, and there was, I mean, a lot of that came of, from from some of the Me Too stuff, a lot of that came from the social media stuff. And, and it feels like as a lot of people were grappling way too late with this for the first time, I think, especially coming out of him winning um, an Oscar and thinking about, you know, the Me Too stuff going on in Hollywood, he's he dies. Right. And so then it becomes 
well, now we can't talk. We definitely can't talk about it because you're dishonoring the dead. And we have this story that has never quite gotten the cultural reckoning that it should, um, especially in the overall look at how we talk about Kobe's career. Yeah, David, you you hit it right there on the head. You know, I vividly remember Gail King, the interview Mm -hmm. she had with Lisa Leslie. It's been said that his legacy is complicated because of a sexual assault charge, which was dismissed in 2003, 2004. Is it complicated for you as a woman, as a WNBA player? It's not complicated for me at all. Even um, if and all the vitriol and pushback Gail King got, you know, from Snoop Dogg and people like that. Gail King, out of pocket for that. <laughs> way out of pocket. What do you gain from that? David, why was this such a common sentiment that, you know, let's not talk about this. Let's let, let's stay away from this discussion. I mean, it's uncomfortable. It's some I mean, I, I was teaching at Morehouse at the time, uh, which is a, you know, all male, you know, HBCU. And I mean, these kids had like Kobe had been there their entire lives. Right. And there was so much, you know, myth making. Well, not even myth making, but just legend around Kobe. And, you know, Mamba mentality, which ironically sort of came out of this, quote unquote, perseverance of him, you know, getting over this case. And, you know, there was so much about him as a winner, as a champion. And then even later as a father, um, as somebody who was supporting the WNBA. And this case complicates all that stuff in a way that makes people just it, it just makes it all yucky. You know, it makes it all all not as cut and dry as we want to say, because we just really want, like, I would love to be here talking to you guys for 30 minutes about Kobe Bryant winning championships and the documentary on Netflix. Like that's the comfortable conversation to have, but this just makes it more icky in a way that I think a lot of people just don't want to, don't want to deal with. And of course, on top of that is the long history of this country and, and it's, treatment of black men, especially black men in relationship to white women, that converges, intersects with this story in, in a very nasty way also. Yeah, that racial subtext is really fascinating. Uh, Julie, Kobe released a statement after the criminal charges were dismissed. I'm going to read it here. Uh, he said in part, although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. After months of reviewing Discovery, listening to her attorney, and even her testimony in person, I now understand how she feels that she did not consent to this encounter. Julie, what do you hear there in Kobe's words? Well, I think it's as close to an admission as we've ever gotten from an athlete, right? I mean, you know, it, you have to have consent from both parties in a, in a sexual case, right? Or in sexual intercourse or, you know, whatever. So it's both parties have to turn their keys on the submarine. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a really extraordinary statement. Um, and, you know, I, I think there needs to be room for for young men to learn different things about consent and to grow and to mature in that sense. And, you know, I think that we're seeing a little bit of that from Kobe in that statement, although I think it's probably heavily vetted by lawyers and there were other people involved in writing it. But I think it was a really extraordinary thing to put out there. And, you know, when I whenever Kobe comes up online, you immediately get attacked by all these young men and women who say, 
she was proven to be a liar in court. The charges against Kobe were dropped. He was found innocent. And that's become the narrative now is that, you know, that this was thrown out of court because the judge decided that she was a liar and the whole thing ended. And that's that's not what happened. And I think that the statement sort of speaks for itself in terms of, you know, how he felt about it afterwards. Um, you know, I appreciated Kobe's support of the WNBA his support of young women's sports, the whole girl dad thing, you know, I mean, those are all great positive things. I'm not sure that those are things that make up for, um, you know, having committed sexual assault, if that is indeed what happened. And I think from that statement, it seems that that's probably more likely than not. Um, I, you know, I, I, I loved Kobe Bryant too. You know, I, I did and you know, Brandon, you and I are in, in Chicagoland. Like we're aware of Emmett Till. I mean, I, white women are aware of the history white women have accusing black men as well. And so it is really uncomfortable to talk about. And, um, you know, it, it, and there are all those racial tensions as well that factor into this as well as just tensions between men and women. Um, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, that, that, that statement, I think, like I said, we, I don't think we've had anything like it from, from anyone else celebrity, um, who's, who's been accused of this kind of thing. It's just kind of amazing to me that when there is a statement that is so rare, um, that the narrative has still become, you know, this case got thrown out of court because the judge determined she was a liar. And I think that's really kind of disturbing. Yeah. I think, I think the tough part is when, you know, we're talking about Kobe's legacy here, we want to talk about the entire picture, right? Um, so I guess the the big question is, how do you hold all of these things in the same hand, right? You know, it, Julie, how do you reckon that? Do, are you able to, uh, you know, see the life as, you know, not black, not white, but just kind of gray? And, and you think it should be just revealed as is? I, I think I'm getting closer to that. I mean, full disclosure, I'm a sexual assault survivor myself, Um mm-hmm. I know, so I, you know, I tend to identify with a a victim or a, you know, a person who's saying they were assaulted. I know what that's like, and I know what that terror is like, but I've really come to understand that, you know, no matter what you do in your life, you are more than the sum of your, your worst deed to a lot of people. And I know that he meant a lot to a lot of people. And I try to sort of keep that side, um, you know, close whenever I think of that, whenever I think of his case, but at the time it happened, it was wait for the facts to come out. We don't know anything. Well, rarely do we get trials like in the OJ case where you can sit there and listen and judge for yourself. Um, when it was over, it was now it's over. Why are you trying to judge it up? And then when Kobe passed, it was why are you trying to slander a dead man? So like when is ever the time to talk about powerful men assaulting women? It's like we never have that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to talk about this in talking about Kobe and not erasing it because latter 20 years of his life were spent doing the things that I wanted to say retribution, but they were doing things that colored what happened, right? The way that he did stand up for women. And that's not, honestly, it's not for me to say that that made up for it because, you know, this is something that people have to put their own judgment on. I think that, you know, what Julie was talking about, does that, does your worst moment define you? But it's complicated by the fact that if you have done this incredible wrong, what do you, how do you spend the rest of your life? And what does that mean? And everybody has sort of a different answer to that. And that's sort of what makes Kobe's legacy so complicated, especially towards the end of his life.
In the aftermath of Kobe's sexual assault charges, he lost many of his sponsorships. He started getting booed in stadiums. He faced no punishment from the league, and he continued to amass wins on the court, including two more NBA championships. The Lakers are NBA champions once again. Off the court, as a philanthropist, he was just as successful. He granted over 200 wishes with Make-A-Wish. He sponsored disaster relief and after-school programs. And he dedicated significant time and money to ending youth homelessness. It's a problem that we can address. It's something that we can solve, and we're going to go after it, and we're going to solve it. He also took a creative turn, writing and narrating an animated movie that won him an Oscar. And the Oscar goes to... Dear Basketball, Glenn Key and Kobe! And then, in 2020, a tragic helicopter accident took the lives of Kobe, his daughter Gianna, and seven others. A tragedy has befallen the world of basketball. Earlier today, at the age of 41, Kobe Bryant was killed. Hundreds of thousands of mourners visited the Staples Center in L.A., his basketball home. Everybody's kind of mourning right now. It's like L.A. feel has a different feel to it. I met Kobe Jellybean Bryant in February of 2000. I'm a Make-A-Wish kid. I can't even cry right now, man. I really can't because, like, I'm still remembering that day and how happy it made me, you know, to give me, like, that extra motivation to, like, survive. I grew up going in the bus to go watch his games and see him, and it's just, it's, it's, it's not real. And the following year, he was posthumously elected into the Basketball Hall of Fame. His wife, Vanessa, accepted the award on his behalf. You're a true champ. You're not just an MVP. You're an all-time great. I'm so proud of you. I love you forever and always. Kobe Bean Bryant. Amazing grace. Well, that's making Kobe Bryant, without question, a legendary basketball player, a man whose story took some turns and ended tragically and prematurely. The last words we're going to leave you with today come from our interview with Kobe's biographer, Mike Sielski. You know, you use the word at the top of the program, Brandon, complex. And I think that's the best one to use to describe Kobe and kind of his place in our society. There was a lot there. There was a lot there on the court. There was a lot there off the court. And how you view him and how he touched you in a certain way depends an awful lot on the stage of his life that you encountered him. Complex, I would say. The road, the road to greatness is complex. This episode of Making was produced by Justin Boole and Hina Srivastava. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Special thanks to our guests, Greg Downer, Mike Sielski, David Dennis Jr., and Julie DeCaro. And be sure to check out their amazing books, including Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality by Mike Sielski, 
Sideline, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America by Julie DeCaro, and David Dennis Jr.'s The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the Legacy of a Freedom Ride. More episodes are on the way. Be sure to press that subscribe button, and we're going to see you again next week. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.